This is the Education Gadfly Show. You know, this is how you can help boys, right? You're so concerned about the gender gap in learning, and here we go. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Quentin Soufren. Quentin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, also joining us as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, Quentin, uh, for those of you that don't know, is the Senior Advisor of Innovation Policy for Excel and Ed. Previously, he was the Executive Director of College Career and Military Preparation at the Texas Education Agency. He's been with also with Amplify, TNTP, the Learning Institute. It is great to have you on the show, Quentin. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and talk industry-recognized credentials. Well, that is exactly right. You read my mind. So let's jump right to it in Ed Reform Update. All right. Well, Quentin, as you know, you know we came out with a study at Fordham uh, about a month ago looking at industry-recognized credentials in Texas, where you have particular experience. And, you know, like a lot of people in education reform, we've gotten more interested in career and tech stuff uh, and more interested in, in these industry-recognized credentials or IRCs. I mean, they seem to be fantastic because here, here's this notion where kids can earn credentials that have real world value, going to help them get a job or, and then maybe get paid more. There are usually assessments related to these credentials, so they have to show what they know. It's a little bit like, in my head, it was always like, oh, this is like the career tech version of the advanced placement program. There's a common standard, high standards everywhere. You know, doesn't matter if you're in a rich school or a poor school or what part of the country, you're going to have the same standard. Uh, the teacher is there to help the kids meet that standard to coach them on. Uh, there's this mastery-based element at the end. And then real-world value. In AP, you get college credit, might save a bunch of money on tuition. IRC, maybe get a job, maybe get paid more. And yet, you've been studying this at Excel and Ed for a while, and you wrote a great piece for our blog recently. The IRC is not necessarily as exciting as perhaps they first seem. Why is that? Yeah, great question. And Excel and Ed, you know, we, we likewise were excited about and still are to some extent about IRCs. But, you know, I think what we've learned with our, our work in Credentials Matter, just under trying to understand the landscape of these credentials and how states are either promoting them or using them, that it's really all over the map. So at their best, an industry-recognized credential is just what you say. It is a demonstration of competency, skills, and knowledge that can signal to employers and others that, hey, I'm, I'm ready for success, or I'm going to be more prepared, at least, for mm -hmm. success than I might otherwise. But there are also a lot of junk credentials out there and that really aren't being recognized by employers or don't carry currency in the market. And so they become really an exercise in going through the motions, but not something that a lot of folks really recognize as valuable in the labor market. Let's be specific, right? When you've done some of these studies and we found this too, these things pop up like first aid certification or some kind of OSHA workplace safety certification or Microsoft Office, right? meaning that you know how to use Microsoft Office. These things are useful. I mean, we want kids to know first date or CPR is another one or, you know, workplace safety. We're for that, right? <laughs> but when people think of these things, they think, oh, somebody's going to actually like train to be a nurse in high school. And then when they graduate, they'll be able to be on the first rung of nursing and get a jump start. There's some of that, but there's also a lot of these bogus ones. And so meanwhile, a bunch of states have said, hey, we're going to 
track this and we're going to include it in our college and career readiness indices or you know some kind of high school accountability system and schools get credit for kids getting these credentials and they don't necessarily distinguish whether we're talking about first aid or we're talking about like okay you know C++ computer coding uh, certification what do we do about this is it let's come up with a list of the good credentials and only give credit for that can we do that is it that easy I wish it were. At the heart of it is is really a lot of the assumptions that we're baking into IRCs um, and states are making about them. And to your point, I mean, first aid, all those things, you wouldn't necessarily find a ton of people, I would hope, that would say a student is career ready if they've earned first aid or, or some of those. It's certainly a building block that you would hope would kind of build into some sort of those pieces. But states need to be treating and looking at the pathway experiences. I know you mentioned this in your report, too which is really thinking about the set of experiences, not just one proxy as being kind of building up to, yes, here are the academic skills that are needed to be successful that include all those basic proficiencies that we are sadly not seeing kind of being met these days. And then there are also the work-based learning experiences, the technical skills. Yes, it might include an IRC, but it's part of an intentional set of experiences. It's not something that is just existing out on its own that we now attach career readiness too. And I think, you know, we understand it's hard to find metrics and provide those simple pictures of what these things might mean, but Mm -hmm. states should be in a better place and and have, can take a a bigger responsibility in making sure that, you know, they're not going out on a limb with some of their uh, assumptions about them. And some of this is also, there's been this interest over the years to say, well, how can we assess career readiness? We, We know college readiness, you know, that's what the people at the college board say they do, right? And, and we got the ACT or the state assessments that can get at some of that. It's hard. Career readiness, obviously, it's the same problem you have when you try to do some kind of assessment at the end of college, right? It's just so vast, the amount of material, depending on where young people are heading. And you try to come up with these skills that are transferable across any sector or industry or you know, and they end up being kind of silly, right? I mean, in my, in my opinion, I mean, maybe there's some commonality, but it gets you to that 21st century skills stuff. Everybody needs to learn how to work together and communicate. It's not specific enough to actually be able to get your arms around and say, is this young person ready to go succeed? So the IRC thing is glittering, but it turns out to be, uh, in many cases, less interesting. We've been arguing that A big problem is that in high school, we still require most kids to basically take a college prep course of study. You know, you look at high school graduation requirements set at the state level, and it's still a lot of academic courses, you know? And so if you wanted to do something like youth apprenticeships, junior and senior year, where kids were actually in workplaces or at community colleges doing real career-specific training, uh, it'd be hard to fit into the schedule. I mean, now, do you buy that or, you know, is, is that something we should be moving towards? We define a high quality pathway in general as a combination of those experiences, right? The ability to obviously take academic courses, but also fit in at the same time, those work-based learning experiences that you're talking about, opportunities to earn post-secondary credit, whether that be academic or technical. Every learner is on a different journey. And I think that our education to workforce systems need to be acknowledging or more acknowledging of that. Um, And that means thinking about, yes, the schedules, but also kind of how we're thinking about things like seat time, how we're thinking of things about credit for experiences that may not just be a course in Mm -hmm. in the landscape. Certainly, post-secondary universities are looking at that and universities are looking at that. So why shouldn't K-12? That's right. David, what what do you think? When I first heard about 
this whole IRC thing. It was pretty obvious that it would, the quality was going to vary, but I was, you know, I had a pretty open mind because, you know, the way we used test scores initially was kind of stupid too. And it, you know, sometimes it still is, right? But I think we can all agree it's better now than it was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? I sort of saw this as a first generation quick and dirty stab at things. And I'm not getting the sense that there's been a lot of progress. In other words, I'm not I'm not hearing that states are, are starting to get real and clean up their act. Is that fair? When it comes to IRCs, there's definitely, you know, there are policies like accountability, incentives, and those pieces that can have some unintended consequences in that way. But I think there are a lot of states that are really focused more on the full pathway set of experiences that are really creating some intentional experiences and options and opportunities for students to explore career opportunities or or fields and then to get real hands-on experience, whether it's through work-based learning or through other kinds of authentic kind of experiences to to really be prepared for hopefully college and career. Now, four-year college is not necessarily, you know, how we should be defining college for everybody in our, in, our, in our view. So I think there is that. But as long as they're focused only on one proxy for career readiness, I think you're going to run into some of these, these issues for sure. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, great stuff. Thank you for the good work you all have been doing on this. It is important. And like David says, it is still early days. I mean, it's only recently that states have tried to include this sort of thing in their accountability system. So maybe they didn't get it right the first time. We'll make it better going forward. And I don't think anybody thinks we should go back to the time when we pretend that everybody, as you say, is going to a four-year college. We got more work to do in this front. We'll keep uh, following it. So again, Quentin Soufren, the Senior Advisor of Innovation Policy at Excel. And Ed, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you both for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You know, we're going to have to start on a sad note today to tell our listeners that your beloved T-Bone so sadly passed away. He did. 16 and a half years he lived, though. I keep just thinking about... He ran the race. He ran it well. I told you guys, my mother-in-law said he completed his assignment Yeah, with my husband before we met, then my husband and me, and then just me after I lost my husband. So he's been the through thread. We all have our furry members of the family. I, I know that we do. We are going to miss him, including on this show, because he made several appearances <laughs> ever since we've been recording from home. So uh, yes, he let us know when he had to go pee and when he wanted <laughs> his ball. Many, many fond memories of T-Bone on the podcast. Well, very sorry. I know it is hard to lose those beloved pets. What do you have for us today on the education research front? I have something different. Figured it's college football season, and I actually found a study about college football. So don't look for any ties to K-12 education today. (laughs) That's fine. It was in the Ed Finance and Policy Journal by an economist. Uh, has nothing to do with K-12. It's just fun. It seemed like it was a fun one to do. It looks at whether college football performance affects student earnings and the gender wage gap. Wait, student oh. earnings of the football players? No, no, of the of the kids who are at these universities. I don't know if we're familiar with the college football literature. Prior research has found that winning college football teams increase the quality of college applicants and alumni donations. So the theory goes, if that giving impacts the academic quality and reputation of the school, one might expect that better team performance would increase student earnings. 
So they're looking at 101 undergraduate schools that are in the NCAA Division I subdivision, which are the universities with the most competitive, well-funded football teams with large fan bases, mm-hmm. averaging about 44,000 or more per game. Mm-hmm. Prior studies show that 64% of males and 57% of females at these universities attend at least one game annually. The study uses College Scorecard, a data set developed by the U.S. Department of Ed containing specific university-specific data, including graduation rates, employment rates, and earnings of these students, student loan information, tuition cost. It pulls from many data sets. I guess this college scoreboard is like the, the mega data set, pulls from iPads, the student loan system, the Department of Treasury. And then they use some data from a popular college sports website for the scores and rankings of all of these various teams. They use a regression model with fixed effects for each student cohort and college. And then there's a lot of the methods about how they're able to rule out the two biggest threats to the model. One of which is that there's a time varying characteristics and the other that there's a change in the sample due to or related to team performance such that we have a selection problem. Again, lots of pages, but they basically are able to rule out these major threats to their study design. They're looking at wages six years after enrollment for each school and cohort from 1996 through 2007. Key findings, better college football team performance during the early years of school attendance increases the average wages of males, but does not impact female wages. Specifically, for an average of one additional game won per season, mean earnings of men would increase by about 0.4%, and the gender gap would then widen by 1.7%. But there's good news. Better team performance near the time of graduation, because they looked at it at different time periods. Mm -hmm. Once you get closer to graduating and trying to look for a job, the wages increase average for both genders by about 0.5%. So they do an exploratory analysis on mechanisms by using the National Survey of Student Engagement, which has been going on for a really long time in higher ed. They sample, they've got a freshman sample at 36 of these Division I schools, and it asks students how much time they spend on the various on various activities. Uh, one, socializing with friends. Two, spending time in organizations, student government, campus publications, and other campus activities and groups. And three, preparing for class and studying. Then they use year and school fixed effects. They find that improvement in a football, college football team performance increases the likelihood, this cracks me up, of participating in Greek life, (laughs) meaning a fraternity or sorority, such that they hypothesize that the student peer networks are expanded due to a team's success. So maybe that has something to do with the positive impact on earnings. I, well, first of all, fascinating. Okay, second of all, but but the whole thing about the earn the, the school doing well towards the end of their college experience, yep. I would think that could also have to do with employers, right? That you're like, oh, I'm I'm more familiar with mm-hmm. your university. It's been in the news more because you've got this winning record, maybe. Yeah. Go on, Patrol. You were saying something about the meritocracy. Well, Go on. Yeah. I don't know. Just like, you've heard of it. Oh, I've heard of that school. You guys had that great football season. 
as a University of Michigan graduate, this makes me all super happy. Now, granted, we are taping this right now before the Michigan-Penn State game. So I don't know. By the time people listen to this, I will not be feeling as good. I spent every Saturday, I don't think I missed a single one, at the big house for every home game. It was an amazing part of my Michigan experience. And it's yes, definitely- it's expand it, your social network. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I will say- the fraternity, you know, was a big part of that. We had the pregame at the fraternity and we all walked the whatever mile or two to the stadium together and pelted each other with frozen uh, marshmallows as it got cold. And of course, we do know that when when a school has a big, big year, then suddenly the applications go up. I do wonder, was this funded by the uh, College Football Coaches Association <laughs> of America? You know, uh, I didn't see that. I, I did not see that. <laughs> you know, this is how we can help boys, right? You're so concerned about the gender gap in learning. And here we go. We just well, have a strong football, have a strong football program. Well, seriously, uh, you know, if you haven't noticed, David, there are some people maybe to your left who, you know, hate football and on a rampage against football. And, you know, it feels like that's maybe crested a little bit and, and partly because football's made some changes, although that's been controversial this year, again, around head injuries. This is a great American tradition. And yes, boys, especially, but not just boys. Look, I've got a couple of nieces who just graduated, one from Georgia, one from Notre Dame. Uh, They're going to be very happy with this news that this should help their wages. And they Mm -hmm. were at every home game and some away games as well. So it's just a lot of fun, people. Uh, Well, football to David is really soccer, right, David? We're calling it the wrong thing. I have a cousin who gets very offended when I call Mm -hmm. uh, football football. I'm sure that when you put it to him that way, too. Yeah. He, yeah he right and, and someday, Amber, the pickleball teams on college campuses. Is That's right. Hey, this was fun. This was good, Amber. You know, it, know. it is seasonal. So, Need a little uh, levity after losing my T-bone this week. And uh, this, right. this brought, brought a little smile. So Indeed. Indeed. college football. We uh, People study this, you know. Economists <laughs> study college football. Who knew? Big Ten president's commas on it. Hey, man, they, they, they invest a lot of money in football, so we should study it. All right, hey, that is all the time that we do have for this week, though. So until next week, I'm David Griffin. And I'm Mike Petrilli. Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.